All right, now this morning, it's already been said also, we're not going to go back to the book of John quite yet. I want you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians, the third chapter. And I want to very quickly just focus in on two verses, uh, verses 8 and 9. And more specifically, I really want to focus our attention on one phrase in verse 8. The phrase is the unfathomable riches of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, Paul says, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me, was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light which is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. Let's pray. Our our Father, we thank you for a privilege of gathering uh, together with you this week and around your word, and I pray, Lord, that you'd bless our time as we study and think upon Uh, the topic of the unfathomable riches of Christ. Uh, Help us uh, to uh, set aside the cares of the day and the cares of the upcoming week and uh, just be mindful of your word and to uh, help focus our attention properly on you, our God, and Christ, our Savior. We pray that you would honor yourself and the the Savior in this hour as we study your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, Happy New Year. I wasn't with you last week. I know you guys were, and you guys met, and I'm thankful for that. But since this is my first time with you uh, this year, I wanted to start off with trying to help focus or uh, set our affection correctly uh, for the upcoming year and try to encourage us all to, with intentionality, focus more on the person of Jesus Christ. I think it's very easy to get caught up in a thousand and one uh, different issues, especially as everybody's... Uh, hurried back, hurrying back from vacation and Christmas and times with family and friends, and we're trying to get back into our normal uh, routines and normal schedules. But I thought it'd be helpful just to intentionally pause before we get too much further into the year and, and to encourage each other and to encourage our hearts by focusing on Christ. I, I think we all struggle to some extent uh, with understanding the full reality of who Christ is, and how near he is to us who believe. And I think we struggle to some extent understanding what belongs to us in Christ. Because if we properly understood Christ and our relationship to him, I think we'd all spend much more time and much more effort cultivating a relationship with him. We'd be more preoccupied with him. We'd be more enamored with him. We'd be more absorbed with the person of Christ. And more in love with the person of Christ, because that really is the center of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian has been defined like this, a life that is dedicated to loving Christ. That's what a Christian is, a life dedicated to loving Christ, an ongoing life of devotion to Christ, a relationship of love between Christ and the believer. And each and every one of us should be growing in our love for the Savior. We should be growing in our love for the Savior. We should be longing to grow even more in our love for Christ. As, again, knowing things about Christ is not the same thing as knowing Christ. Knowing Christ and loving Christ are much more than just acknowledging a certain set of facts concerning his person and being. But knowing Christ and then loving Christ means we come to a recognition and understanding that Christ, moment by moment, is physically present within us, physically present in our life. And knowing that, and because of that reality, as a result of that reality, we're different because of him in our lives. Because he's in our life, we've been changed, we've been transformed. And we love him for who he is, and we love him for that very fact that he's changed us. We love him for the very fact that he has given us a new life, and now he dwells within us. It's an amazing truth. And our lives in him are different than they ever were apart from him. And again, that reality and the reality of that relationship affects us totally. It affects the way we live, the way we think, the way we act, our priorities, etc. and so forth. Because when you genuinely love a person, you spend all of your time thinking about that person. You spend all of your time thinking about that person. You spend all of your time thinking about how you can please and encourage that person. And if we genuinely love Christ, then all of our thoughts, all of our time... All of our energy, all of our finances are going to be employed in seeking to serve him and please him and doing that even more. Understanding him more. Growing more and more in our relationship with him. 
There's a wonderful book, I've told you about it before, a wonderful book written by an English Puritan a minister who lived in the mid-1600s. His name is Thomas Vincent. Uh, he wrote the, a book entitled The True Christian's Love of the Unseen Christ. I, I would encourage you to get a copy of it, pick it up, and every once in a while be challenged by that book and be encouraged by that book. Thomas Vincent, The True Christian's Love of the Unseen Christ. In that book, Vincent says, The life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we are much without spiritual life as a carcass when the soul is fled from it without natural life. Faith without love to Christ is dead faith, and a professor who, who without love to Christ is a dead professor, dead in sins and trespasses. Without love to Christ, we may have the name Christians, but we are holy without the nature of Christians. We may have the form of godliness, but are holy without the power of godliness. Give me your heart is the language of God to all people, and give me your love is the language of Christ to all of his disciples. It's a great statement. The Christian life is about loving Christ, loving our Savior. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ condensed down the entire moral requirements of the law. He said this in Matthew 22, verse 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, all your mind. He says this is the great and foremost commandment. And that's what God requires from us. He wants us all, the entirety of us. He wants us to love him with our all, uh, to love God completely, totally, comprehensively. And if we have a genuine love for God and a genuine love for Christ, then our desire should be for him. Our delight should be in him. And all of our hopes and expectations should be from him. And if we really love Christ, then all of our gifts, all of our talents, all of our abilities, again, in time, we're going to be ready to do whatever he requires of us to do. Even if we should be called to suffer for his namesake, if he calls us to that task. Because if we love him much, we would think little of denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him wherever he leads us, because that, again, is what it means to be a Christian, to give everything for Christ. Vincent says there's a vast difference between true Christians and nominal professors. And he said it's the difference is seen in their love for Christ. He says lovers give themselves unto those whom they love. You see that in the marriage relationship where the husband and wife give themselves in unconditional devotion to each other. This is true also of those who are married or joined to Christ. They give themselves unto him to be wholly his, to be at his disposal united with him and in communion with him. And he goes on speaking about those who are uh, captivated by Christ and truly in love with the person of Christ. He says, He who knows that love will engage and employ for him all the powers and faculties of their souls. Their thoughts will be brought into captivity and obedience unto him. Their understandings will be employed in seeking and finding out his truths. Their memories will be the receptacles to retain them. Their consciences will be ready to accuse and excuse as his faithful deputies. Their wills will choose and refuse according to his direction and revealed pleasure. Their senses and members of their bodies will be his servants. Their eyes will see for him. Their ears will hear for him. Their tongue will speak for him. Their hands will work for him. Their feet will walk for him. All their gifts and talents will be at devotion and service for him if he has their love. And if he has their love, they will be ready to do for him whatever he requires. They will suffer for him whatever he calls them to do. If they have much love to him, they will not think much of denying themselves, taking up their cross, following him wherever he leads them. Again, that's the essence of Christianity. It's loving the Savior, knowing Christ, loving the Savior, following him wherever he leads. And the love that we have for Christ has to be, must be a preeminent love. It must be a supreme love. We must love Christ more than we love anyone else on this planet. Listen to what the Lord says in Matthew 10, verse 37. He says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, to have a proper relationship with Christ, to put Christ in the proper position that he deserves and that he uh, already occupies means that we love him more than we love anybody else. Preeminently, supremely. Even those who we would most naturally love 
uh, those uh, the members of our family, our children, our spouses. But unfortunately, we live in a time in the church where this truth, this reality has really been turned on its head uh, because for the most part, the quote-unquote church today, uh, the focus is not on Christ, the focus is on us. You're not going to find many, many uh, modern uh, books uh, if you can make your way through the potpourri and the angels in the quote-unquote Christian bookstore and the incense. If you can find yourself your way back to the, the book section, you're not going to find many modern books like Thomas Vincent's classic. Because most of the books that are written today, Christian books, so-called, are written about us, right? The, the best-selling Christian books are about self-esteem, financial, in, financial independence, uh, success in relationships, uh, your best life now, quote-unquote Christian romance novels. Sad but true, right? Modern evangelicalism is concerned about self. The love of self instead of the love for Christ. Therefore, we really desperately need to redirect our focus. Uh, we need to reprioritize. We need to reemphasize our pursuit of the person of Christ. Again, as the year starts out, knowing him greater, loving him in a, in a greater fashion. One commentator offers this. He says, the Christian life is about loving Christ. He says it's about loving him securely, about loving him totally. It's about loving him sacrificially. It's about loving him obediently. It's about loving him worshipfully. It's about loving him in terms of service. It's really about loving Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means now you commit your life to loving him. That's biblical Christianity. And again, that emphasis, that re-emphasis, that refocus uh, needs to be where we head ourselves at the beginning of this a new year upcoming. Now, I tend to think that most uh, believers today have a shallow relationship with Christ because they're not fully aware of him. They're not fully aware of the resources that we have in him. And again, I'm just uh, convinced for the, the vast part, uh, we don't really know him as we should. And I think that's one of, well, I don't think, I know that's one of the reasons we do things here around here the way we do things. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have an emphasis from the pulpit, from the Bible studies, from teaching in Sunday school classes. We're not interested in just filling your mind with more information. Everything we do here is with the intentional intent of focusing more of our attention on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. Everything we do is Christ. That's the goal. Everything we do is Christ. Because Christ is everything. Listen, Colossians 3.11. Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3.11. Christ is all and in all. We, we want to lift up Christ. We want to pay attention to Christ. We want to point your attention to Christ. Because Christ is all we need. And, and Christ is everything we need. And again, Colossians 3.11 affirms the utter sufficiency of the person of Jesus Christ for every issue in the life of the believer. Therefore, I want to know him more. I want to know him more and more, and I want you to know him more and more. I want to love him better, and I want you to love him better. I want us all to have a greater understanding of him, who he is, all that he has done for us. I want the, the majesty and the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ to captivate our hearts and our minds and our souls because I'm convinced that the more we know him, the more we understand him, the more we will love him. And the more we understand him from the pages of Scripture, the more magnificent and majestic and awesome and precious the person of Jesus Christ becomes to us, the more he captivates our hearts, the more he captures our minds and, and captures our very lives. Again, we'll grow in that love. So that in everything that we do on our own personal lives would be to magnify and glorify him. Have I read that someplace? Of what is important. Nothing else matters. I'm telling you, listen to me. Nothing else matters than God's glory. In your life on a personal level, in your life as a family, in the life of this fellowship, nothing else matters. Christ is all we need. 
People are desperate for the person of Christ. And we're desperate to grow in our knowledge and understanding of him. And I really think that's one of the reasons that Paul writes the book of Ephesians. He wants us to know Christ. Right? Obviously, he's writing to the church there at Ephesus. He wants them to know the great, in a greater fashion, the person of Jesus Christ. He wants them and us to know the great resources that we have in him. You know, when you go to the book of uh, uh, Ephesians, it's a great book, obviously, that describes, uh, amongst other things, the church, the doctrine of the church. Uh, the church, the, the most wonderful assembly on the earth. The called out ones of God. Called into existence by God himself. Assembled by God himself. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So again, the church is called by God into existence, assembled together by God. It says in Romans 8, for his purpose. The church are the called out ones who've been eternally loved by God. Those loved by God, those who love God, and those who are called or who are elect according to God's great purposes. The church is a mystery that in ages past has been hidden but now revealed. Where God has removed the barrier of sin, that which separated him from men and separated men from men. And he's taken all the way, taken away all the barriers. He removed all the enmity and he's done that in Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the reason for the church. Jesus Christ has borne in his body our sin. He, he paid our penalty. He reconciled us to God. He reconciles us to men. And through Christ, through his ministry, God created in himself, in the person of Christ, something new. Something that never before existed in the history of the world. This thing called the church. One new man in Christ. Where there's neither Jew or Greek or barbarian or bond or free or male or female. All are one in Christ. That in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both to one body through the cross. Ephesians 2 and 15. And that's what Christ does. We need Christ. We need a greater understanding of Christ. We need a greater focus on the person of Christ. We need to understand that Christ is the reason that we're here. We need to understand that Christ is the, the, the reason for the church to be called into existence. And what God has done through Christ is breaking down all the barriers. He's broken down all the barriers. He's removed the enmity. He again has created that which the world will never know, that which has never existed before in the history of the church, a unity among men. And again, this unity is found in the church. One spiritual body of forgiven men and women, reconciled to God, eternally loved, both Jew and Gentile, in Christ. All having direct access in one spirit to God the Father. It's a tremendous truth, an encouraging truth. Again, a mystery hidden throughout all of the ages past, but now has been revealed. And the revelation is not just the revelation of the truth of that reality, of the unity of the body of Christ, but the revelation that has been revealed is the revelation of the love of God for men through Christ. The great grace of God to men through Christ. The magnanimity of God's kindness to us in Christ. Think about the fact that you're saved. And we were talking about this this morning in our... Uh, elders meeting the fact that why would god save any of us and the fact that god has saved us and 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 the fact that he has loved us when we're unlovely the magnanimity of the kindness of god to us through the person of jesus christ so paul takes up the pen under the direction of the holy spirit and he writes in order that we might understand that great revelation of the church the unity we have in the church and then again it wants us to understand the great riches of god's grace to us in christ it's always pointing us to the person of Christ. It's always pointing us to the unfathomable, unsearchable riches that are found in him. And so again, he does that so that our knowledge of him would grow. Our, our understanding of him would increase. Therefore, our love for him might grow deeper and deeper. And the focus of our life might be proper upon the person of Christ. Now what I want to do is I want to go back to the beginning here of the chapter and just kind of pick up the flow a little bit uh, into the verses that we're going to look at and I'm going to move very quickly I'm not going to do a full exposition of the verses uh, just for our time this morning but just a very quick flyover to get to verses uh, 8 and 9 that I want to kind of focus in on but look back up at chapter 3 verse 1 Paul says for this reason I Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles again he's writing uh, to the to the church there at Ephesus, he's writing literally the letter of 
uh, Ephesus, uh, or the, writing the letter to the Ephesians, literally while he's in prison. He's locked up. But he doesn't consider himself to be a, a prisoner of Rome, but rather he is the prisoner of Jesus Christ because God has called him, God has set him apart, God has saved him, and God has given him a task and a message to preach. And the message that he's been given to preach is the love of God for the entire world, uh, both Jew and Gentile. The message is the love of God that all men can be saved in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And again, Paul, Paul's faithful. Uh, he's faithful to the message preached, the message given to him, again, irrespective of his circumstances. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Again, he's speaking to the church at uh, Ephesus, those who were uh, previously despised by the religious Jews of the days. Uh, the the religious leaders of Israel would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. The religious leaders of uh, Israel would see Gentiles as filthy dogs. These Gentiles who were once ignorant of truth, these Gentiles who were once trapped in sin, they who are uh, notoriously immoral. But now he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's treat, writing to those who are redeemed in Christ, those who have been changed and transformed by God's grace, those who have been made objects of God's kindness and eternally loved by God. Those eternally loved by God, but called in time to be rescued, to be forgiven, to be brought brought into God's glorious presence through the person of Jesus Christ. Again, that's the church. Verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, and now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Again, he's talking about God's kindness and the riches of God's kindness and grace through Christ, Again, the fact that God redeems everybody, he doesn't care, right? Jew and Gentile, all can be reconciled. Uh, Again, they can be reconciled to God through Christ, and they can be reconciled, brought together. And again, culturally, we we don't understand this because we don't understand that strong dichotomy between the Jew and and the Gentile in the culture of the time. But it's a remarkable reconciliation. And when Paul uses that phraseology, uh, the mystery of Christ, he's really speaking about the incarnation of the Savior, the incarnation of Christ. He's speaking about the fact that God eternal has condescended. We sang about it this morning, right? The, he has agreed to leave eternal glory. He has agreed to come and be born as a babe. The mystery of Christ, he's talking about two natures in one person. Two natures in one person, one man, fully God, fully Fully man, fully God, 100% deity, 100% humanity in one person. Again, a great mystery, the mystery of Christ. And again, the fact that he's not only left glory and put on our nature, but again, he's humbled himself. He's humbled himself by doing that, but he's humbled himself further by enduring suffering at the hands of wicked men. All the mocking, all the jeering, all the spitting upon him. All the beatings that he endured by his very creation suffering of death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the mystery of Christ. God's way of salvation, again, the mystery of Christ, God's way of salvation, the the problem of the human predicament. God's way to reconcile men to himself. Excuse me, the fact that there's no other way. right? The fact that there's no other way except Jesus Christ coming into the world, putting on our flesh, suffering and dying as our substitute, dying in our place, could ever deal with the issue of sin because the issue of sin is so great. The problem of sin is so great that nothing except the death of the incarnate God can deal with it. Again, the mystery of Christ. The the mystery of Christ, that phraseology, I mean, we could go on and on. It really should be the most thrilling uh, phrase uh, in the world. It should be the most important thing in your life, uppermost in your your heart, a continual uh, object, a continual source of amazement, the grand object of your interest in love, the mystery of the person of Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession, great is the mystery of Christ, right? Great is the mystery of godliness. He who revealed in the, was revealed in the flesh, who was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up the glory. Again, great is the mystery of godliness. 
the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, has now been made revealed or now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Again, verse six, to be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promises of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, it's just a tremendous truth. All men everywhere can be reconciled to God and to each other in Christ. Jew and Gentile positionally one in Christ. One in in Christ before God. All washed by the blood of Christ. All receiving the same eternal life. All given the same Holy Spirit. All possessing the same life of God. All redeemed by the same Lord. All receiving the same inheritance. All going to the same heaven. All forever in time and throughout eternity. Praising God for his grace that made the whole thing possible. We're one in Christ. And again, apart from Christ, that could never happen. Apart from Christ, that could never happen. Apart from Christ and apart from the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ, that could never happen. Again, the plan of God that he eternally developed and displayed in time, that this is the only way that reconciliation can be made through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The mystery of godliness. Verse 7, Paul says, Of which I was made a minister. Diakonos is the word there, minister. One who executes the commands of another, a servant. One who serves on the benefits or for the benefit of others. That's who Paul was. He was a faithful minister of the gospel. A faithful servant of the gospel. And look what he says there. He says, I was made a minister. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. He's saying that he didn't make himself a minister. He has a task that has been assigned to him. He's been called divinely to serve in this capacity. One of the great problems amongst many in the modern church is that in the church today, we've got many people involved in ministry that are in part of ministry, but they're not there because God put them there. They put themselves there. They weren't called of God, but they were called by themselves. And for whatever personal reasons they get out of the whole thing, whether it be some kind of sense of power or self-glory or desire to be the man, to be important or to be somebody, whatever the case is, they themselves choose to go into ministry, not Paul. Not Paul. I was made a minister. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me. And notice... He uses that phraseology given a couple different times. He uses it in verse 2. You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. And again, verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. Ministry is a grace. Ministry is a grace. It's a grace given to preach, a grace given to represent God, to represent Christ before men. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need me. Ministry is a mercy of God. And a man is a true minister only if God makes that man a minister. Personal giftedness, abilities, education, vocabulary, ability to talk, desire, personality, none of those things, excuse me, in and of themselves make a man a minister. Ministers are made by God, called by God. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. In essence, he's saying, I had no choice. This is what God called me to do. And again, the gift of God's grace and the stewardship of the gospel, that ministry given to him, not sought after, but given. Paul didn't ask for it. Paul didn't seek for it. And again, that phraseology given is just tremendous. It's all given. Salvation is given. Grace is given. The call to ministry is given. Given freely to Paul because of God's love, because of God's mercy and compassion in his life. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. Next phrase, according to the working of his power. Or the King James says, the effectual working of his power. The word power there is dunamis, strength, ability, inherent power. We would actually derive our English word dynamic from the root there, which speaks of motion as opposed to that which is static. 
It's production, productive activity, change. Now, the word dynamite is a transliteration of dunamis, but dynamite is not a translation of the word. Paul's not talking about gunpowder. He's not talking about something that blows up in the sense that a stick of dynamite would. He's talking about the inherent power of God that affects a result. That affects result. That would be a pretty good understanding of the, of the word. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power to affect results. He's trying to explain his ministry. He's trying to explain what, what turned him from being a persecutor, a blasphemer, a hater of God and a hater of Christ and God's people and to the foremost apostle and preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. He says it's the effectual working of God's power in his life. The effectual working of God's power in his life is a gift of God's grace that was given to him. So what is it that changes a man? What is it that changes a man from a hater of God and a hater of Christ to the one who loves God and loves God's people? What is it that takes a natural man who once thinks that the things of God are absolutely foolish? But then he turns that man into one who delights in God's truth, one who enjoys them, one who lives for them, one whose highest ambition is to know the truth of the word of God and to know it more and more. Again, Paul gives the answer. It says it's the effectual working of the power of God. It's God's work in the life of Paul, God's work in our own life. Again, Paul's very much aware of that work in his life, that power in his life. Because left to his own, Paul would still be persecuting Christians. Left to his own, Paul would still be blaspheming. He would still uh, be hating God and hating Christ. Because the truth is, even before he repented, even before he came to saving knowledge of the truth, he'd already heard the truth about Christ. He'd heard the truth about Christ. If you go back and look very carefully in the book of Acts, you'll see that he was there at the preaching at the Stephen's pre- preaching at Stephen's stoning, right? But he hated God. Hated the message, hated Christ, hated the good news of the gospel, but something happened to him. What happened to him? It's changed, transformed, made a new creation, reconciled, forgiven. Again, from the foremost persecutor of Christians, the hater of God, to a lover of God and a bold proclaimer of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only thing that accounts for that amazing transformation is the effectual working of the power of God, that and that alone. We could look at it another way with another theological term, and we could call that regeneration. Rebirth. He was born again. He was made a new creation, a new man. And it wasn't something that he chose to do. It's not something that he did for himself. And again, for us, it's not something we do. It's not something we do for ourselves. It's something that God alone does because of his grace, the effectual working of his power. Because the Apostle Paul, nor any of us in the room, would have ever chosen to make ourselves Christians. If it were not for the power of God and the power of God's grace in our life. This God who interferes in the realm of mankind. This God who punctuates the eternal time continuum. And he comes in and he interferes in the affairs of man. And he interferes in our own life. He who transforms us from the inside out. He who saves from eternity past, who calls us in time. He gives us his grace, and then he gives us the ministry of his grace to proclaim to others as he calls us to represent him as as ambassadors of Christ with the proclamation of the gospel. That's exactly what Paul was called to do, and, and there's a certain sense, no matter where you are in life, whatever your job might be, to a certain sense, We're all called to be heralds of the gospel, ambassadors of Christ in our places of business, in the places that we shop or interact with unbelievers. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, again, according to the working of his power. Now, when we start trying to be creative, or we start thinking that we have certain ideas that are better than God's ideas, when we start thinking that we are somebody who we are not, 
we forfeit the grace and the power of God in our lives. Who places us in ministry in the first place. We don't need to teach anything new. We just need to be faithful to the old. It's another reason that so many ministries today are inept, without power, impotent men not called by God, occupying places of ministry in their own strength, not in the power of God, with a different message other than the message that God has given to men to preach, to proclaim. And people who think too highly of themselves. I don't think Paul ever got over the fact of who he was before he came to Christ. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, he says, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And I do not think he speaks with hyperbole. He's not speaking with some sense of, some false sense of humility. It's giving you an honest, accurate assessment, an honest, accurate understanding of who he is and his standing before God. He is the chief of sinners. Again, another problem today with the church and those in it, those who put themselves into ministry, a lot of people think too highly of themselves. Too many people in ministry, quote-unquote, think they're actually important to the kingdom of God. They don't see themselves accurately before God. And on the other hand, Paul did. He accurately saw himself as the chief of sinners. He actually therefore understood that ministry is a mercy, that he was called into that ministry by the grace of God. He was made a minister according to the gift of the grace that was given to him. And he had one overwhelming desire, I believe, just one overwhelming desire, just be faithful. Just be faithful to the call. He didn't want to be a somebody, he just wanted to be faithful. Faithful to God, faithful to Christ, faithful to the message given to him. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Verse 8, to me the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Again, to me the very least of the saints. It really means less than the least. Not good English, but more accurate. More least. More least than all the saints. I am less than the least. Again, it's not a, a, a... uh, 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 an exhibition of a false sense of humility. It's just a real, realization of who he is. The true estimate of a man who knows who he is before a holy God. He understands his sinfulness. He understands his sinfulness, especially in the light of God's gift of grace to him in his own life. He understands the perfect righteousness of Christ and his lack of that righteousness in and of himself. Again, I'm convinced Paul never got over who he was, even in the midst of the salvation he so richly enjoyed. He never got over who he once was apart from Christ. First, uh, in 55 AD, he says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles who's not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. And, and a couple of years later, when this is written in 61, he says to me, the very least of the saints, the disgrace was given to preach to the Gentiles. And then a couple years later, somewhere between 63 and 66 A.D., he writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I'm foremost. He never got over his salvation. He never got over the fact of the reality who he truly was before God and before Christ, a sinner saved by grace. And I think we know this reality by way of practice. The closer we get to Christ, the more we see our sin. The closer we get to Christ, the greater the light is turned on by the holiness of God in Christ. Therefore, we have an increasing awareness of our corruption, the corruption of our flesh. One commentator notes this, it's Donald Guthrie, he says, Paul never got away from the fact that Christian salvation was intended for sinners. And the more he increased his grasp on the magnitude of God's grace, the more he deepened the consciousness of his own natural sinful state. So again, the more Paul 
saw God in his holiness, the more he saw his sinfulness. And the more amazed he was as he stood before the grace of God, and the more he stood before the grace of God, the more his love for God in Christ grew. This God who saved him, this God who forgave him, this God who reconciled him unto himself. I think... To our own downfall, we're all too familiar with the story. God saves sinners, that's true. But the amazing truth that perhaps we sometimes forget is he doesn't have to. He'd be perfectly just and perfectly right just to leave us all in our sin, just to punish us eternally because we deserve his wrath upon our sin and our rebellion. But God chooses to save sinners. And Christian salvation is intended for sinners. Sadly, most men don't see their need of Christ, but for we who do. Next time we have opportunity, we should sing with full voice. When I think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee how great thou art. Right? Never never can get over the issue of our salvation and the grace of God that he chose to save us. To me, the very least of the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So again, ministry is a mercy. God doesn't need us. He uses us. And he uses us to preach. So the question is, what's the purpose? What What is the preacher to preach? Is the preacher to preach on the, the status of the world? Is it the responsibility of the Christian ministry to preach on patriotism? Is it the responsibility of the Christian ministry to preach on morality, to preach ethics, or to preach religion? The importance of, uh, of godliness and religious discipline and zealousness and being good and following the law and abstaining from sin. Is that the primary ministry uh, of the, the Christian minister? Is that the primary message? And of course the answer is no to all those things. Paul had been doing many of those things before he came to Christ, when he was yet a Pharisee, when he was a hater of God and a hater of Christ. He was religious, yes that's true, he was very zealous But when God saved him and called him into the ministry, he gave him a new direction, a new focus. He called him to preach. Here it is, the unfathomable riches of Christ. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach the unfathomable or the unsearchable riches of Christ. The idea behind the word there, immeasurable, or uh, uh, is immeasurable, impossible to comprehend, can't trace it out, untraceable. Uh, you, you can look very hard but never discover the end. The issue is boundless, infinite, abundant. That, that's the idea behind the word unfathomable. And, and again, he says, to me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach, ungeliedzo. It means just to proclaim the news, announce the good news. Preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable, unsearchable, immeasurable riches of Christ. I mean, what a phrase. The unsearchable riches of Christ, on one aspect, we'll never be able to fully discover its totality, but we have to ask the question, at least to some extent, what does it mean? So primarily, the unsearchable riches of Christ is the essence of the gospel. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's him giving himself to us and for us. Again, it's the fact that the eternal God stepped into time. He humbled himself. He became bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh. He condescended, uh, leaving eternal glory because of the zeal of uh, of the Father for the love of fallen mankind and the zeal of the Father's glory. And that again, that eternal love that God has for sinners of our vile race. He came and to suffer and to die as our substitute, the unfathomable riches of Christ. The fact that he, the sinless one, would give himself for us sinners. 
The fact that he loved us while we hated him. The fact that he loved us uh, while we were in rebellion against him. The fact that God has mercy upon men. That God has compassion for us. The fact that Christ has the power to cleanse. The power to pardon. The power to forgive. The power to save to the uttermost. The fact that Christ is willing to freely receive all who want to come to him. All who want repentance. All who come in repentance. All who want forgiveness of sin. Again, the riches of Christ. He has the power to change the, the worst of character. That he deals with men in tender patience. He bears up the weakest believer. He strengthens us to the very end. He has a sympathy to raise up those who are cast down, to bring to him, or if we bring to him all of our troubles, he raises us up. Again, it's the unfathomable riches of Christ. Christ is everything. That's the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is Christ. Everything is in him. There's nothing apart from him. Listen, the, the gospel is not just we get saved from our sins. Listen to me. The gospel is Christ. It's the person of Christ. The fact that he has been given to us, for us, dwelling within us. Uh, The fact that we know him and can know him and can approach him, that we are united with him. The fact that we get our life from him. Uh, Again, I don't think you can ever fully describe the term, the unfathomable riches of Christ. You can add superlative upon superlative, I guess. Language fails us, right? The unsearchable, exceedingly great, immeasurable, boundless, infinite, abundant riches of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gift given. And again, he's saying Christ is all we need. Christ is everything we need. Put a mark there in your Bible and go back to a, a 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter a one. Under this heading that Christ is all we need and everything we need. Look at First Corinthians one verse thirty. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God in righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Have you uh, noticed the world lately? A little bit of problems going on here and there? A little bit of chaos? A whole lot of corruption. How do you deal with it? How do you deal with the great perplexing issues and problems of life in this world how do you deal with a world that's literally collapsing around us where do you go for the answer is christ right christ is the answer because christ is our wisdom that's what it says right christ is our wisdom from god god by his doing god's doing you're in christ jesus who comes to us wisdom and what a mercy what again a great grace the world has no idea where to look for answers. That's why they just keep making it up and keep lying repeatedly about every issue. They have no wisdom. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And every man apart from Christ is a fool. So we need to stop listening to fools and start listening to God's word. By his doing, you're in Christ Jesus who becomes to us wisdom from God. You know, we have a problem not all the problems the people on talk shows are always talking about, the news guys. You know the problem we have, the greatest problem all men have, is the fact that Christ has come. The fact that Christ has come. The fact that the truth is he has lived in the world. Uh, his presence, Christ's presence, speaks to the sinfulness of mankind. Christ's presence in the world makes us conscious of our own guilt. 
And the fact of the reality that Christ has come, that he has lived in this world, speaks to our own inability to make ourselves right before God. Christ's presence in the world speaks to the fact that none of us in and of ourselves are right enough to stand before a holy God. So we're in a whole lot of trouble. How can we do that? How can sinful men stand before a holy God and not be absolutely condemned? Again, the answer is Christ. By his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Here it is. And righteousness. Again, the fact is we are sinful. We've lived a life of sin. But in Christ, our sin can be forgiven. In Christ, we're clothed with his righteousness. In Christ, we can stand in the presence of a holy God because the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. It's been credited to our account. It has been imputed to us. That's part of the unsearchable riches that belong to the person of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Again, he is our sanctification by his doing. You're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. Okay, we've got it. In Christ we're forgiven. That's true. But we're still doing battle with sin. And our adversary is running around like a, a roaring lion. He's seeking to destroy us by all the perversion in the world. So how do we stand? How do we stand up? How do we fight against evil? How do we fight against sin? Christ is the answer. Because he is our righteousness. And Christ is our sanctification. Because of Christ, when we die, we will be able to stand before God faultless and blameless. And because of Christ, he helps us work out our salvation in our daily lives. He places the person of the Holy Spirit within us, who gives us victory over sin and the devil. The person of the Holy Spirit, who daily is conforming us more and more to the image of the person of Christ. The unfathomable riches of Christ. But Christ is also our redemption. In Christ Jesus, he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And again, in Christ, we lack nothing. In Christ, our redemption will one day be complete. When these bodies take their last breath and they're put in the ground, Christ has promised to glorify us. He's promised to raise us up literally and physically, defeating death just like he defeated death. He's promised to seat us next to him for all of eternity. The unfathomable riches of Christ. John 6.40, which you're familiar with, says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Listen, the thing most men need today more than anything else is life because most people today only exist. They only exist. They have no life. Jesus Christ says in John 10 and 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life, have it abundantly. Life means spiritual life. Life means a positive relationship to God in time. Life means enjoyment of his fellowship. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3 and 8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want to know him. He says, for me to live is Christ. Christ is everything. So again, to really live life in the world and not just exist, to really live life is to have Christ, to know Christ, to have a personal knowledge and an intimate relationship with him. And again, not just that we know stuff about him, interesting information about him, but that we know him personally, we know him intimately, we enjoy companionship with him, fellowship with him. We get the picture to some extent on a human level, you know, one of the greatest blessings you can have in life is to have a great wife or a great husband or a great really close friend that's a priceless position 
to have an intimate, personal relationship with another being. But in the gospel, we're offered this kind of relationship and more with Christ. The author of life, the creator of life, the prince of peace. Again, I make mention of the fact that Paul was a persecutor of Christ until he met him. He came face to face with him and his life changed forever. And from that moment forward, he had an intimate state of communion with Christ and Christ became near to him and dear to him and more real to him than anything or anyone else in the world. And that's the kind of joy that God wants us to have in Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. All of God's goodness, all of God's riches are found in the Savior. And again, there's nothing better in the world, nothing more uh, comparable in the world than to be loved by him. To know that, to feel that. To understand the fact that you've been called out. My wife and I have been talking about this a lot lately. Called out of a world that's under condemnation and darkness and perishing, that it is run by the devil and his liars. We've been called out of that mess into a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing comparable to that. To know that, to feel that, to understand that you've been called into God's family. To know that you've been changed and transformed forever by the kindness, the mercy, the grace, and the love of God. The unsearchable riches of Christ. I mean, we could go on and on. Matthew 11, verse 28, Christ says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Boy, you think this world is desperate for some rest? And not only that, I'll give you rest, but I'll give you peace. John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. truth is ultimately we have no real problems we have no real troubles no ultimate troubles no real fears in christ we have rest we have peace we have joy and we have freedom from anxiety philippians 4 6 be anxious for nothing but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to god the result verse 7 then the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Talked about this a lot here. When we fret, when we worry, when we're anxious, we're just admitting that we don't trust God, we don't believe in his sovereign power. But when we believe the truth, when we meditate on the word of God, it's a great antidote to anxiety. When we understand the fact that all the difficulties we face in life or within God's sovereign purposes, we can rest. When we understand the fact that God has loved us eternally, called us in time, therefore, while we might not be sure of the immediate, we're confident of the ultimate. We're headed to glory because of Christ. And because of Christ, we've been loved by God. We have access into the very presence of God by way of prayer and supplication, always. And always with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to our Heavenly Father who loves us. Therefore, the peace of God, that inner tranquility, that promise given to us based on our confidence in the Word of God, that God is able and willing to do what's best for us as His children, as for us freely to take again instead of anxiety the God of peace our father has promised peace to his children that surpasses all understanding divine peace supernatural peace transcends the human intellect human analysis human insight and that's the kind of peace that God gives his children that guards the believer's mind from fear, from doubt, which leads to great hope. Finally, verse 80 says in that passage, says, whatever is honorable, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good of repute, if there's anything excellence and all worthy of praise, 
let your mind dwell on these things, right? The unfathomable riches of Christ give us objective and subjective peace in a world that lacks that very thing. Psalmist says in Psalm 31, verse 19, How great is your goodness to which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. Paul says that God saved us, Ephesians 2, 7, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All of God's riches, all of God's kindness, all of God's treasures are found in Christ. Again, he comes to us and calls us to himself, and he saves us, and he dwells within us. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The unfathomable, unsearchable riches of Christ. The wealth of the person of Christ. Everything that is true about Christ, who he is, what he's done, all the blessings that he has, all the blessings he bestows on us as his children. That's why it's important for us to understand the truth. That's why it's important for us to understand the greatness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and our position before him. Colossians 2, 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 2 Peter 1, 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Paul says to me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So what is the direction of your focus in this upcoming year, 2023? Before it gets too much further, before a thousand and one different issues start pressing upon you, Make your your goal to, with intentionality, focus more on the person of Jesus Christ. Stop and evaluate your love for Christ. Is it real? Is it present? Is it growing? How how much of my time am I going to spend intentionally cultivating a relationship with him? Is Christ really precious to me? Do Do I really know him? Do I really love him? Am I really resting in the unfathomable riches of the person of Jesus Christ? Or am I just like the world being swept along, unhappy, miserable, troubled, perplexed, anxious? If that's true of you as a believer in Christ, you're missing what God has for you in Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ is meant that we would not live like paupers but that we would know him in a greater fashion, that we would enjoy him, that we'd be faithful. We'd grow in our relationship to him and love for him. That we would take opportunities that God gives to us to tell to a dying world around us of the unsearchable riches of the Savior. A world that lives without hope, without joy, without peace, without rest, without help. But all the answers are found for men in life in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think the world watches us to see how we deal with it, to see how we live our lives. If what we say we believe is actually the way we live our lives. Because when times of difficulty come and we face challenges and trials, will we be found possessing that hope and that peace and that joy, that calmness that God provides for us in Christ? in times of difficulties and struggles. Because who knows, maybe the way we live our lives before an unbelieving world is one of the ways that God opens the eyes of the unbeliever around us, calling them to repentance and leading them to a true knowledge of the truth so they too might enjoy the unfathomable riches or the unsearchable riches of Christ. Sadly, Unbelievably, there's some people who don't not want, do, do not want to know Christ. They don't want to enjoy the unsearchable riches of Christ. It makes no sense to us. It's really the irrationality of unbelief. It's 
see evidence of an active work of the enemy in men's souls. It has blinded the minds of them, believing they may not see the light of the glory of the gospel, of the glory of the person of Christ who is in the image of God. But for we who do, we who love him, may we intentionally pursue him, make him the direct object of our focus, and make whatever changes we need to make in our life to make sure we have time for him. I have been um, really struck, I don't know, the last few weeks, I think I mentioned it a few weeks back, really struck by just when it's early in the morning and it's quiet and I'm focused and I'm not distracted by all these things, how real, how encouraging the truth is as I take up the word and read it. Maybe need to unplug. I tell my wife I need to unplug a little bit. We're on Mon- in Montana for the first four days. I don't think I turned on anything electronic. I, don't know, I might have, but certainly wasn't the same pattern that I follow when I'm at home. So easy to follow into a getting distracted. Make Christ preeminent. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for the fact that we have uh, this great opportunity to know you, to love you. We're thankful for the unsearchable, unfathomable riches of our Savior brought to you because of, or brought to us because of your great kindness and condescending love. Help us to focus upon you, to love you more, to love you in a greater fashion, to just enjoy you, our God, and Christ, our Savior, and help us to be a light to darkness around us as we point men and women uh, to the hope that there is in Christ. Thank you for this congregation, Lord. I pray you go before us as uh, this is the last time we will meet all together in this hour. I pray that you would help us uh, work through all the difficulties that may come uh, next week as we go to a new schedule. We're thankful for that opportunity uh, that we have to uh, try to reach more people with the truth. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.